1979, Dan Aykroyd left the TV show Saturday Night Live and got into movies. It was now the autumn of 1981, as Dan sat in his family's farmhouse in Ontario, Canada. The ordinary-looking farmhouse had a lake nearby, plenty of trees, and had been in the Aykroyd family since it was built in 1860. On this particular day, Dan started reading a magazine about the paranormal. This was the norm for the Aykroyd family, as for generations they had a deep connection with the paranormal. While Dan flipped through the pages of the magazine, there was an article that caught his eye. It explained how it was possible that a ghost could be frozen for a limited amount of time, given the right hardware. He leaned back and he thought, it'd be great to bring back some of those old-school ghost comedy movies, like the Abbott and Costello films, or Bob Hope's Ghost Breakers. He got some more ideas, and he started writing up a script for a new movie. He started writing it with the intention of him starring in it, along with his good friend, John Belushi. He started pouring more and more of his knowledge of the paranormal world into it, along with his comedy side as well. And as he wrote more and more on this script, he gave it a title. Ghost Smashers. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome. This is Industrial Industries World Radio, episode 46. I am your host, DJ Glowing Ice, and in this episode we are covering a movie that is very beloved to me, very beloved, and uh, it has a lot of nostalgic memories with me, but also a lot of new memories as well, because I want to tell you just my little idea of Ghostbusters, my experience with it in a nice little uh, capsule-sized opinion. Ghostbusters uh, didn't come out when I was even alive, so I got hip to it during the cartoon when that was going on, and after I saw the cartoon, I didn't realize there were even movies about it. So my experience with Ghostbusters movies-wise was Ghostbusters 2, and it was in the form of the TV-edited version on a VHS recorded off the TV. And the first Ghostbusters, I saw in snippets, and if I ever did see it, it was also on TV. So a lot of the scenes in the first Ghostbusters were cut out, you know, for either time or just whatever graphic content, whatever. And so I never really saw the legit movie Ghostbusters until years upon years later when I bought the DVD set. And I finally watched it, and it was like a whole new movie to me in a lot of ways. And so after seeing the movie for the first time in its full entirety like 15 years ago, I finally watched it again. And I just gotta say, if you watch a movie 10 years after the last time you've seen it, you still pick up on a lot of new things. If it's a good movie. I just gotta say that Ghostbusters is a perfect movie. It's perfect. So as you heard in that very beginning teaser, we're gonna check out how Ghostbusters was created, how it all started from the shooting of the movie, the casting, some fun stories behind the scenes. We're not really gonna just like do a film review. 
what we're going to do is just really talk about the story of how this movie all came together. I did painstaking research, looking online, reading a book that recently came out. It's called Ghostbusters The Inside Story. It's got legit info in it from all of the people they contributed to this book. So that was my source for a lot of this stuff. It's a comedy slash horror movie that's about scientists who study the paranormal. They start out working at a college, getting grant money, and uh, working as paranormal researchers at the college until they're thrown out, and that sets the stage for them to realize, hey, let's go into business taking care of ghost problems in New York City. And so they get into business, and it's a little slow at first, until they have their first customer that claims to have a dog in their refrigerator screaming at her. And it just kind of ramps up from there, and business gets great, even uh, far more than great, as the paranormal activity in New York City starts to uh, come to a head and threatens to end the world. And so... It's then up to the Ghostbusters to save the day. So that's basically a nice, neat little summary of the movie. Alright, so anyways, let's check out how this movie all started with the history of Ghostbusters 1984. Ghostbusters wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd's family had a deep history with the supernatural. His great-grandfather, Dr. Sam Aykroyd, was a spiritualist researcher who held seances in his house. Dan's father, Peter Aykroyd, wrote a book called A History of Ghosts. So Dan growing up with the supernatural around him, he wound up having a very deep and serious understanding of it all. When time came for Dan to think about a profession, he thought for a second about becoming a priest. But then as he got deeper into college, he started studying other things until he dropped out completely. During this time, he was working as a stand-up comedian in nightclubs for a few years. He was noticed and he wound up working for some comedy sketch groups until he became part of the TV sketch comedy show Saturday Night Live. He was a cast member on the show from 1975 through 1979. While working at SNL, he met fellow cast member John Belushi. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi became really close friends. And by 1979, Aykroyd and Belushi both left Saturday Night Live to make movies together, such as 1941, Neighbors, and The Blues Brothers. In the fall of 1981, Dan was in his family's old farmhouse when the idea of Ghostbusters came to him. Dan was reading an article in one of his dad's magazines about supernatural research. In the article, it said that there was a possible way that if given the right tools, that an apparition of a ghost could be frozen in place for a limited amount of time. Dan thought the idea of catching and trapping ghosts was a great idea. As Dan was in the movie business, this idea turned into a movie idea. It was a movie that he could mix comedy with ghosts, much like the old ghost comedies from the 1940s, bringing those old style of movies to the present day with some actual paranormal research along with it. 
Dan spent the last half of 1981 writing the first draft for Ghostbusters, which at first was titled Ghost Smashers. Ghost Smashers was different compared to how the movie wound up being. In the first draft, there were three Ghostbusters, Stance, Vankman, and Ramsey. It took place in New York City, but also in the future, as well as outer space, and the Ghostbusters could travel interdimensionally and through time and also be on different planets. Dan Aykroyd has mentioned that his writing is kind of like kitchen sink writing. He just throws everything in there, knowing that eventually by the final script it will be more fleshed out and more realized. In these early drafts, the Ghostbusters were an up-and-running thing from the start. It was written that many Ghostbuster groups were out there, competing against each other. There was a lot more action with a lot of ghosts, and less character-driven material. The Ghost Smashers were described as tough sanitation workers, or like firemen, that cussed and smoked. Like in the final script and in the movie, the Ghostbusters did wear jumpsuits. But in the early drafts, they wore riot-style helmets with visors and special gloves that had built-in wands. Even in the early scripts, a lot of the things that wound up in the final movie did exist, such as the proton packs, along with the ghost trap and the containment unit that stored all the ghosts. The now iconic red No Ghost logo also existed in this very first draft of the script. Instead of the firehouse, they used a deserted Sunoco gas station in northern New Jersey to store all the ghosts. Among a lot of things, here are some scenes that differ from Ghost Smashers to the final idea that was Ghostbusters the movie. The early scripts called for a prologue, which read, A random mesh of microwave transmission had torn a hole in our reality envelope, and spirits and entities from the other side were entering our reality through these holes. In the original opening scene, the Ghostbusters were driving the Ecto-1 to a house to catch the green blobby Slimer ghost. It showed the Ecto-1 driving to a guest house and cornering Slimer in the basement and catching it. Originally, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man would come about 20 minutes into the movie and he'd rise out of the water next to the Statue of Liberty. And as ghosts and other paranormal entities wreaked havoc on New York City, it called for a skeleton on a motorcycle but it was later changed to the skeleton driving in the taxi. And towards the end of the movie, it called for the Ghostbusters being sucked into different alternate dimensions. The tone of this first draft of Ghostbusters was a lot scarier and more serious, also with dry and dark humor mixed in. Aykroyd wrote himself as the Ghostbuster race stance. He then wrote the role for Ghostbuster Peter Venkman for his buddy John Belushi. And the third Ghostbuster, Ramsey, was written for Eddie Murphy. It's Industrial Industries World Radio's debut album, Songs and Skits of Seasons 1 and 2. All the songs you heard in the episodes are all here, like the uplifting It's Gonna Be Okay. Check out the hot and hip rap song 2020. Wiener. 
balls. Rap song 2020. Rap song 2020. And don't forget the classic hit, Fart in Your Face. I want to fart on a guitar. I want to fart on a power bill. I want to fart on fresh fruit. I want to fart in your face. All of the best songs and skits from the first two seasons of IIWR are right here. Industrial Industries World Radio's songs and skits of seasons one and two. Check it out on Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else you can stream and download music. The backstories in a lot of the supernatural things that happen in the Ghostbusters world runs deep. I'll spare you most of it, but if you were like me and you didn't catch on to all of who Gozer and Shandor are, I made summaries of both. Alright, so first up we have Gozer, and Gozer is a powerful ancient god. Basically an all-powerful being, and it's the top villain in Ghostbusters, like the top dog, the, the boss, the whatever you want to call it. And I'm calling it an it because it can be in any form, shape, or being out there. It could be whatever it wants to be. Gozer was first worshipped in 6000 BC by Mesopotamians and Sumerians. Gozer always has two minions that go along with it wherever it roams. Gozer's minions come in the form of demon dogs, with horns and red glowing eyes. Both of these demon dogs have names. One is Vince Clortho, which is the key master, and Zool, the gatekeeper. Gozer goes by different names. Sometimes Gozer the Traveler, and sometimes Gozer the Destructor. But the only way Gozer the Traveler, or Gozer the Destructor, whatever you want to call it, can enter a world, its two minions have to possess the creatures or the beings within the world, and the Gatekeeper and the Keymaster have to meet using the creatures that they possessed within the world. So, for example, in this movie Ghostbusters, Zool possessed Peter Vankman's love interest, Dana Barrett, and Vince Clortho possessed Dana's neighbor, Louis Tully. So when the Keymaster and the Gatekeeper meet, and it opens up the door for Gozer to enter the world, Gozer will now let the worshippers of it, or the hero of said world it's wanting to destroy, choose the form of how Gozer will appear. So, like in the movie Ghostbusters... Everybody cleared their mind, but Ray just thought of the most innocent thing he could think of, and out popped Gozer as the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Then we got Evo Shandor, who in the first script, he was the interdimensional employer of the Ghostbusters, and he is an eccentric type, to say the least. He had a very creepy and dark office in which he worked in, and along his walls, he had the heads of bats, lobsters, and rats, all mounted as trophies. And then through later edits of the script, his role got less and less, to the point where by the final script, he was only mentioned by name. In the script, his role as the Ghostbusters employer was dropped, and he later became the leader of the Cult of Gozer. Shandor was an architect and a doctor. 
He did a lot of unnecessary construction and renovations on buildings in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Along with this, he did a lot of unnecessary surgeries as a doctor, too. In 1919, he wanted to bring back the Dark Church of Gozer. In 1920, he founded a secret society dedicated to Gozer. He got his followers to research the paranormal and ectoplasmic hybridology. He made plenty of inventions and was hired to be the architect for the apartment building at 550 Central Park West. Under the guise of normal construction, Shandor built it to function as an antenna for pulling in spirits and inevitably to work as a way for Gozer to enter our world. When Shandor died, he was even more powerful, traveling to different dimensions, but waiting until 1984, as that was the year of the coming of Gozer. So anyways, those are the two big bad boys in Ghostbusters. Switching gears, pun intended, let's take a look now at the vehicle that the Ghostbusters travel in, called the Ectomobile or the Ecto-1. So in the early drafts, the Ecto-1 did exist, and Dan Aykroyd knew exactly what he wanted, and what he wanted was a converted 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor Ambulance. Now, to describe this car and how large it is, it's big enough to fit four fully grown Ghostbusters in it, along with all of their equipment, and have all kinds of gadgets and things attached to it. And it had flair. It had rocket fins on the side of it, and it's just perfect for a team of Ghostbusters to cruise around in. In the original script, the Ecto-1 was painted all black with white and purple strobe lights flashing around it. It also had paranormal powers of its own where it could dematerialize and also travel through space and time and dimensions. So as the early drafts called for the Ecto-1 to be all black, it was mentioned that in a lot of the scenes, it'd be at night, and the Ecto-1 being all black would be very hard to film. So they made a compromise, and the Ecto-1 turned from an all-black car to a white car with the red fins and basically how you see it today in the movie. Dan Aykroyd's friend, John Belushi, who Dan wrote as Peter Vankman in Ghostbusters, was reading all of the pages Dan was writing and loved everything. He was on board from the very, very beginning. Then on March 5th, 1982, Aykroyd got a call that Belushi died. Dan said he was halfway through writing a line for Belushi when he got the call bearing the news. After John Belushi's death, Aykroyd first considered comedian Richard Pryor to fill the role of Peter Vankman. By 1983, though, Dan had Bill Murray in mind. 
Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd worked together before in the Second City comedy troupe and the TV show Saturday Night Live. Aykroyd gave Murray an early draft of Ghostbusters, and Murray liked it. He was happy to sign up. Dan had a lot more ghosts written in this original script than what wound up in the movie. One of them was the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Aykroyd turned to his old college friend John Davickis to help design some of the things from the script. Among the things that Dan wanted John to design was the Green Ghost, also known as Slimer, the Proton Packs, Ecto-1, and the uniforms that the Ghostbusters were gonna wear. When Dan got the design sketches back from John, Dan fell out of his chair laughing as he saw the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man with a sailor's hat on. Aykroyd then met up with Ivan Reitman, who he knew from working at City TV in Toronto. They met for breakfast to talk about the script of Ghostbusters. Reitman started out in college, producing and directing a collection of small films, and then on to producing a stage production titled Spellbound in 1973. He then worked as a producer for the horror films Shivers in 1975 and Rabid in 1977. He then made a name for himself when he produced National Lampoon's Animal House in 1978, and then in 1979, directed the movie Meatballs. Ivan was already connected with a lot of the people that would start working on Ghostbusters, as in 1981 he directed and helped produce the movie Stripes, that starred Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. So as Dan and Ivan met for breakfast, Ivan told Dan that almost every page on the script called for some kind of special effects, as the ghosts in space idea would be impossible, which at the time would have cost over $200 million to make. A budget for a movie which at the time was unthinkable. But Reitman knew that this concept was great, so he told Aykroyd about some things that would need to be changed for it to fly. Reitman gave Dan the idea that the movie would take place in the present day and in New York City, a real-life environment that was relatable to people, and also to make it seem real enough like it could actually happen in the real world. Also, Reitman insisted that the Ghostbusters, instead of being an already established business, that the heroes would start out researching at a college before starting up a business, so the audience watching could be in on it from the very beginning of how the Ghostbusters started. It was a starting up a business type of story. As Reitman stated, quote, This was the beginning of the 1980s. Everyone was getting into business. The other major thing was adding a fourth Ghostbuster as well. Aykroyd was happy to take Reitman's advice and he was open with it and he rolled with it. Even though Aykroyd's first draft from January 20th, 1983 of Ghostbusters needed to be rewritten, Reitman still pitched it to Frank Price, an executive at Columbia Pictures in May of 1983. Price thought it was funny, but comedies at that time weren't that profitable, and seeing how the script called for so many special effects, it was downright crazy. Reitman, making up a price in his head, offered that he could make Ghostbusters on a $25 to $30 million budget. 
Price agreed to the offer, as long as the film would be out by June of 1984, serving as a summer tentpole movie for Columbia. The CEO of Columbia Pictures at the time tried to stop Price and told him not to pursue it. But Price said no, and he was still going to fund Ghostbusters, and that was that. The CEO then went to the head office at Columbia, telling them that Price was out of control. After the deal with Price was made, it was go time to start scrambling. They had a script that needed to be completely rewritten, they needed a special effects studio, they needed additional cast members, and a start date. And they needed it all done and finished and ready to be in theaters in roughly 13 months. Reitman referred Harold Ramis to help rewrite Ghostbusters with Aykroyd. Reitman worked with Ramis on movies Meatballs and Stripes and was called on to help write this new reinvented version of Ghostbusters. Harold Ramis started writing parody-style plays in college. After college, he worked in a mental institution in St. Louis for seven months before moving back to Chicago. In Chicago, he worked as a substitute teacher and on the side being a freelance writer for the Chicago Daily News. He got more work in the entertainment section of the newspaper and started performing in the Second City Improv Comedy Troupe. One day he cold called Playboy Magazine on a whim. He told Playboy Magazine who he was and pretty much right there they hired him. Ramis's job at Playboy Magazine was to edit and rewrite some of the jokes the magazine's readers would mail in. By 1972, Ramis returned to Second City and started working next to John Belushi and Bill Murray. And then from 1976 to 1979, Ramis was a performer and the head writer for the Canadian sketch comedy show SCTV. Ramis wrote the script for the movie National Lampoon's Animal House, which broke records for comedy movies at the box office, and then wrote and for the first time directed a movie called Caddyshack. With Harold Ramis on board to help rewrite Ghostbusters, it was a huge deal. Another good trait about Ramis is that he had a deep knowledge himself about ghosts and supernatural stories. Although he didn't really believe in it like Aykroyd did, he still knew a lot. Ramis's help with the script added a deeper structure and more adult humor, along with the love interest between Bill Murray's character and the female character in the movie, Dana Barrett. Aykroyd and Ramis wrote separately, and then they rewrote each other's scripts, refining it until it became smooth, along with Reitman coming in and dropping ideas here and there. As they wrote, the character Ray Stance, played by Dan Aykroyd, became the honest and enthusiastic one of the crew. Ramis, even though he was only planning to help write, was chose best to play as the character of Egon Spangler. A loving but very smart and well-read genius type with a bit of a sweet tooth. The character Egon Spangler got his name from a classmate of Ramus, Egon Donsbach. And the last name, Spangler, came from historian Oswald Spangler. As Ramus, Aykroyd, and Reitman all knew Bill Murray, it was time to meet with Murray officially to show him the finished script. Bill Murray was born in Evanston, Illinois a suburb of Chicago, Illinois. Between his parents, he was one of nine kids in his family. Growing up as a teenager, Bill took part in theater and was the lead singer of a rock band called the Dutch Masters. 
He went to college in Colorado for pre-medical courses, but dropped out and went back to Illinois. September 21, 1970, he was arrested at O'Hare Airport when 10 pounds of marijuana was found in his luggage. He wound up getting probation for the incident. His older brother Brian invited Bill to be part of Second City in Chicago, an improv comedy troupe. 1974, Bill moved to New York City. He was then recruited by John Belushi to be a player on the National Lampoon Radio Hour. It was a comedy radio show that was produced by the staff from National Lampoon magazine. He then worked on a few TV programs until he landed into Saturday Night Live. From 1977 until 1980, Bill Murray stayed on SNL for three seasons before leaving to focus more into movies. First starring in the movie Meatballs in 1979, Where the Buffalo Roam in Caddyshack in 1980, Stripes in 1981, and Tootsie in 1982, Murray then went to start working on his movie, The Razor's Edge. Reitman and Ramis went to pick up Murray at LaGuardia Airport. Murray showed up in his own special way, an hour late coming from his private jet and blaring a stadium horn that played all different kinds of tunes. He recognized every person he saw at the airport by playing a different song at them through the horn. Sitting down in a restaurant in Queens, spending only about an hour together, Murray read the script and said two words about it, in a positive way, and then he left. No arguing or negotiating involved. He was simply happy, and he signed on, and there was nothing else to say. Bill Murray, even though he agreed early on to be a Ghostbuster, he was known to be unpredictable, and he needed to be more locked down to the role as Peter Venkman. Frank Price knew Bill Murray had a movie that was a passion project of his that he had co-written and he was also starring in called The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge needed funding, so Price sweetened the pot for Murray, saying he'd fund The Razor's Edge as long as he starred in the movie Ghostbusters. Everybody's eyes were now on Ghostbusters, as they had heard that Bill Murray was going to be in the movie. With more rewrites happening, Harold Ramis wrote with Bill Murray in mind when he was writing the lines for Peter Venkman. Among other things being written in the script, some things got cut, such as a scene of an asylum haunted by celebrities. Also, the original Ghostbuster that went by the name of Ramsey went through a name change and was now named Winston Zeddemore. After co-starring with Eddie Murphy in the movie Trading Places, Aykroyd had written Murphy to play as the fourth Ghostbuster, Winston Zedmore. As Murphy was written to play as Winston, his character had a much larger role and also had a Peter Venkman attitude about him. According to Eddie Murphy, he was offered to play the role as Winston, but he had to turn it down as he was busy working on the movie Beverly Hills Cop. After Eddie Murphy passed on the idea and Bill Murray was in the picture, Winston's role was cut a bit. The attitude originally written for Winston wound up going to Peter Venkman, so the role of Winston needed somebody with a more normal working man personality as opposed to another comedian type. A character who would be someone outside of the paranormal world who signs on to be a part of the craziness. And then came Ernie Hudson.
Ernie Hudson was born in Michigan and raised by his grandmother after his mom died when he was two months old. After high school, he joined the United States Marine Corps, but was discharged shortly after due to having asthma. He then moved to Detroit, Michigan and became a resident playwright at Concept East. After graduating from Wayne State University with developed acting and writing skills in 1973, he went on to establish the Actors Ensemble Theater. He pursued to further his education, but he always had to leave the programs, as he was offered roles in productions such as The Great White Hope and Lead Belly. From 1976 until 1983, Hudson had a great working actor ethic. He had done work in 19 television shows and 11 movies. One of those movies Hudson had starred in was Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. This is where Hudson met Ivan Reitman, who was the executive producer for the film. After visiting a friend in the hospital one day in 1983, Ernie found himself in the elevator with Ivan Reitman. Having worked with each other before, they struck up a conversation which led to Ivan saying he was doing a movie with Dan and Bill from Saturday Night Live. Ernie didn't know who Ivan was talking about, as he didn't watch Saturday Night Live. He found out later from his agent that Reitman was talking about Ghostbusters and there was an opening to play the part of Winston. Hudson thought that Reitman didn't have him in mind as in the movie Space Hunter he played a totally different character than the character of Winston. After Eddie Murphy and before Ernie Hudson they had Gregory Hines in line as a potential pick to play as Winston. It took Ernie a few months to get an audition to play Winston and after that, there were four more auditions over the next month. He eventually learned he had the role a month later. Ernie Hudson then read a script for Ghostbusters. The original role for Winston was that he was an Air Force demolitions expert. Hudson thought it was great, and it was funny as hell. When he met his co-stars Harold, Dan, and Bill, he felt the dynamics and the amazing chemistry. He knew he was onto something big. Right before shooting the movie, Ernie got a new script. Reitman had told him that Bill Murray's character Peter Vankman was given more of Winston's lines and attitude. The reason for it was that they saw Vankman as the essential character in the movie. Ernie Hudson at first was taken back a bit and a little confused, but he understood and he was happy regardless to be a part of the movie. So with the four Ghostbusters casted, casting was happening for the other characters in the movie as well. Casting was overseen by a college friend of Ivan Reitman's, Joe Medjuk. Joe had worked with Reitman for the film Stripes and the animated movie Heavy Metal, along with Michael C. Gross, another trusted associate of Reitman's. They became involved as associate producers and started pre-production. Ivan and his team then went out to hire freelance artists which these artists wound up drawing hundreds of concepts of ghosts and monsters. Michael Gross was given the task of figuring out the special effects, designs, and overseeing the freelance artists as Joe Medjuk looked after the casting, scouting, and shooting of locations. Michael Gross read from the original script of how the No Ghost logo was described. A white ghost with a red crossed out circle. It was easier said than done when coming up with a legitimate design. Gross knew that the logo had to be simple, clean, and got the point across easily. 
Gross made 20 to 30 different designs of the No Ghost logo. Then it was narrowed down to five, and then to the final design. When people saw the final design of the No Ghost logo, they knew it had great advertising power. It was originally made just to be slapped on the Ecto-1 and possibly the sign, but it later on grew to be a much larger thing. Medjuk was the one who would take all the phone calls from people with problems, finding props when people lost the originals, and straightening trivial things out. He also conducted meetings to make sure they didn't lose locations, like Dana's apartment building on 55 Central Park West, which they almost did. One night, at a sushi bar, Ivan Reitman and Michael Gross were talking about Ghostbusters together, and artist Tom Enriquez overheard the conversation. Tom approached Reitman and Gross and mentioned to them that he was a concept and storyboard artist. He showed them his work, and he was quickly hired on to be an advertising and poster artist. He then drew up 24 new variations of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and many different designs of the Green Ghost known as Slimer. One variation had Slimer with hind legs and smaller facial features. Another variation was close to the final look, but had him with a butt completely exposed. And then it was time to start casting for the rest of the characters in the movie. Julia Roberts had auditioned for the role of Dana Barrett, but it wound up going to Sigourney Weaver. Weaver was famous for a role in the movie Alien in 1979, but it was her audition that impressed Reitman. Weaver came in being well-read on the script and insisted that Dana should be possessed like the dog on the roof. To show off her more comedic and playful side, instead of the serious side she had in the movie Alien, she proceeded to get on all fours and started barking and howling and gnawing on cushions. Reitman stopped the video camera that was recording her and said, don't ever do that again, as he was also laughing. He said it was great. Reitman told Ramis, who was still writing the final script at the time, about how Dana should be possessed, and Ramis agreed it was a great idea. As Dana Barrett originally had the profession of being a model, Weaver said it would be better for Dana to be a musician instead, to have that strict side, but also showed that she had a soul because she plays music. For the role of Louis Tully, John Candy was originally casted to play as the character, but Candy, he couldn't agree with Reitman on how the character should be. John Candy wanted Tully to have a German accent and own a bunch of German shepherd dogs, he also wanted to incorporate his character Johnny LaRue from his SCTV segments. Along with some other things, the deal just didn't work out with John Candy, and casting looked elsewhere. This is when they came across another comedian from SCTV, Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis had characters and segments that spun off and created the successful comedy album The Great White North in 1982 and the movie Strange Brew in 1983. Moranis was called in by Reitman and was asked about a nerdy character that he played on a few segments on SCTV. Moranis went along with the character, improving and just having a good time. And that's how Moranis landed the role of Louis Tully. Like other actors casted, his ideas and thoughts on the script and the way scenes were written were invited and considered. One of those things Moranis changed was to have Louis be an accountant. He also ad-libbed the speech he was giving when Louis Tully was throwing a party in his apartment. The last major role to fill was Janine Melnitz. 
the loud-mouthed secretary with a no-BS New Yorker attitude. Sandra Bernhard was first offered the role, but turned it down. Actress Annie Potts auditioned and wound up getting the role. Potts was already an established award-winning actress, and also a Golden Globe nominee for her role in the 1979 film Corvette Summer. Annie Potts grew up in Kentucky, and had a Bachelor in Fine Arts and Theater from Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. Potts was called to fly to New York to get fitted for costumes a week before shooting. When she arrived, she wanted to watch the early scenes of them filming Ghostbusters downtown. Ivan Reitman saw her and didn't care about her not being in costume, as he looked at what she was wearing and said it was good just to go with it, and pulled Potts on to do a scene right there on the spot. Before she did get on set and into the scene, she grabbed a pair of thick glasses that weren't her prescription from a costumer standing next to her. This wound up completing the look for Janine. Potts was caught off guard with how loose Reitman worked along the rest of the cast. Scenes were acted out in more of an improvisational kind of way, with the script being more of just a guideline than anything else. Potts loved the script, and she would feel anxious when everyone would improv instead of sticking more to what was written on the paper. As she worked with Aykroyd, Murray, and Ramis more and more, she loved it, as they seemed to always try to make things funnier than what was written in the script. As Potts worked on the character of Janine, she looked back on secretary roles done from actresses Eve Arden and Thelma Ritter. And then we get to the role of Gozer. Originally in the final scene when the Ghostbusters fight Gozer, Gozer was meant to be in the form of Evo Shandor, the slender, Gozer-worshipping architect in a business suit. The potential casting for Evo Shandor was Paul Rubens, the man who is famous for playing the character Pee Wee Herman. But Rubens turned down the role, and the Gozer character changed to an androgynous-looking being that resembled Grace Jones and David Bowie mixed together. Yugoslavian actress Slavica Jovan was then casted to play as Gozer. As Jovan's voice had a strong Slavic accent, they had Patty Edwards do voice work that was dubbed over Jovan's voice. As casting for the roles of the movie were happening, special effects for the movie were already underway. To get someone in charge for all of the visual effects and have them come to life, Richard Edlund got a call. Edlin was an Academy Award winner for his work on Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. He had recently left Industrial Light and Magic to create his own studio, Boss Film Studios. He was set to work on another movie until they pulled out last second for location purposes. So Edlin was available to work on Ghostbusters, and he met up with Reitman, Aykroyd, and Ramis, and he loved the script. The president of production at Columbia Pictures told Edlin that he had $5 million to work with for the effects. So Edlin looked at the script and picked out scenes that would be great and would actually work. At the time, all of the special effects studios were booked, so they decided to build their own special effects studio. They got to work building the studio in Marina del Rey, a community in Los Angeles, California. The studio included different areas. A department for models, one for ghosts, a machine shop, and also an art department. 
The effects team was made up of 300 to 400 people on any given day. They had 10 months to build the studio, design the effects, and then make sure they worked. They pulled 12-hour days to get two days of work done in just one. One of the many things they worked on and built was a small-scale replica of Dana Barrett's apartment building in New York City. Stuart Ziff, who worked with Ed Lund at Industrial Light and Magic, was invited to manage the ghost shop. Ziff was the creature shop engineering supervisor for the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He's the one who made Admiral Akbar's eyes in the Star Wars trilogy. The people Ziff hired worked on different things. This is what made Slimer, the Terror Dogs, and the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man have separate styles and differences. We'll now look at two of the biggest monsters in the movie, Slimer and then the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Slimer was written originally as a random vaporous ghost, and he wound up later getting the name Onion Head. It officially got its name Slimer from the cartoon series The Real Ghostbusters a couple years later. As time got closer to shooting the movie, Reitman stated that Slimer was like Bluto from Animal House. Bluto was played by John Belushi, Slimer is now seen as the ghost of John Belushi, according to Dan Aykroyd. There was a person that wore the Slimer suit, while puppeteers used cables and joysticks to give Slimer different facial expressions. Slimer was shot with a black or sometimes blue background behind it, so all of the shots could be cut out and layered over the film itself. Mark Brian Wilson wore the suits to play as Slimer, and there were also smaller models of Slimer as well. The voice of Slimer with his babbling and blurbing vocals were done by Ivan Reitman himself. Coming from the original script, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was described as a twist on the Michelin Man, the Pillsbury Doughboy, and the Angelus Marshmallow Man from Canada. When it was time to film the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, it was an actual man in a suit, and the guy playing Stay Puft was Bill Bryan, and he'd have to look through Stay Puft's mouth to see where he was going as he walked along the smaller, model-scale version of the streets of New York. Bill Bryan said that the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man suit was hot, sweaty, and started to stink very quickly. As the crotch area of the Marshmallow Man suit kept falling off, there were many different attempts to find the right material to sculpt the Marshmallow Man suit. They finally figured it out to use L200 foam, the same foam used for making boogie boards but with a tighter structure. The suit had several different layers, until the final layer was stretched and then coated in spray glue. There was a problem with trying to hide the wrinkles of the suit, which a lot of it was hidden from Stay Puft's bib. As shots called for different angles of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, they had to hide wrinkles in different ways by making several suits. One for a frontal shot, one for a back shot, one for a side shot, and so on. They also made suits that would wind up being set on fire for certain scenes. Now it's time to take a look at the gadgets that the Ghostbusters use. The proton packs were something Dan Aykroyd described as something waste management workers would use as they'd wear it on their backs. Some early sketches were of them looking like flamethrowers. The first prototype proton packs, they were made of balsa wood, 
cardboard, and pack frames. The final versions seen on screen were sculpted in foam, then made of molded rubber to create fiberglass shells. They were then topped off with old surplus resistors from the 1960s, pneumatic fittings, hoses, cables, custom-made metal fittings, and warning labels. Including the batteries to keep the lights on them flashing, the proton packs weighed 30 pounds. Attached to the proton packs by cables were the guns themselves, called Neutrona Wands, that had various lights coming from them when they switched on. In the Ghostbusters world, Neutrona Wands are used to dispense particles, creating a stream around ghosts to direct them until they get sucked into the ghost trap. They were made of aluminum and had flashing lights. They also had fluorescent bar graphs to help the special effects team with animating the streams into the wands. The PKE meter is the handheld gadget Egon holds onto to track ghosts and their energy. PKE stands for Psychokinetic Energy. The original concept of the PKE meter looked like a metal detector with a metal tank and a small TV monitor attached to it. It later turned into what it is in the movie, which is the smaller handheld version. The PKE meter has two arms that extend along with lights that will flash faster the more closer they get to a ghost. The prop itself was made out of a Lona SP-1 portable shoe polisher and dressed up with a screen, the arms, and lights to give it its realistic but very odd gadgetly look. And then we got the ghost trap. It's the container that the Ghostbusters use to catch the ghost and carry it around until it's transferred into the Ghostbusters containment unit at the basement of the firehouse. The trap also features wheels on the bottom to help it glide under the ghost, calibration knobs, and a light that flashes when it contains a ghost. The trap will be attached to a cable with a hydraulic-powered pedal at the other end. A Ghostbuster could then step on the pedal to open the bomb bay-style doors on the top of the trap to suck the ghost into it. The ghost trap was also there in the very start of Dan Aykroyd's first draft of Ghostbusters. Early concept designs of the ghost trap were similar to the final version, but it didn't have the two opening doors on the top, but rather an elevated rectangular slit. Altogether, there were four Ghostbuster traps made for the movie Ghostbusters. One of those traps were reused in the movie Ghostbusters 2. Now before we get into the timeline of the filming of Ghostbusters, let's take a look at one more thing. An in-depth look at the car that the Ghostbusters drive, the Ecto-1. Dan Aykroyd was always a fan of old, classic cars. From the very start of riding Ghostbusters, he knew exactly what car he wanted the Ecto-1 to be. Dan wanted a 1975 Cadillac that was modified into an end-loading ambulance by the Miller Meteor Company. Throughout the Miller Meteor production run, these cars were quite rare, as throughout all of their years in business, there were only 400 of these cars made. Regardless, Dan thought of that certain car for how huge it was, and to him, it was just the coolest car ever built. So as the actual car in reality was an ambulance, 
The movie called for it to be a hearse, which would then be turned into the Ecto-1. The upside for it being an ambulance was that there were so many hidden compartments inside to store equipment. Also inside of the ambulance was a little seat patients could sit in and a door to put their proton packs in. As I said before, the Ecto-1 was originally all black and it had white and purple strobe lights flashing around it. It could also dematerialize along with having paranormal powers itself. After a few more drafts of the script were written, the Ecto-1 was now white and red and it was an older model. It was now a 1959 Cadillac ambulance instead. Aykroyd assigned his friend, John Davickis, to draw up designs for the Ecto-1. Six weeks before filming was to start, John still had not completed the designs. So Stephen Dane, who had worked as assistant art director on movies like Blade Runner and Brainstorm, was called in last minute to design the car. They were running behind on getting the Ecto-1 done, but by the time Stephen Dane got on the scene, the car at least was bought. October 5th, 1983, after some direction from Reitman, Dane visited the car to take photos and measurements. The car sat there in the Burbank Studios back lot with a gold paint job just waiting to be transformed. As Dane drew up designs, he thought of how fire trucks have equipment racks on the roofs. So that's what gave him the idea to put a roof rack on top of the Ecto-1 as well. Included also in the sketch was the gurney the Ghostbusters would put their proton packs on. Also added into the design were antennas and a lot of equipment on the roof rack of the Ecto-1. There were things like an air conditioning unit, storage boxes, and other junk Dane found just to make it look like some kind of crazy technology. And all of that technology does have a place as Dan Aykroyd describes the stuff as anti-polarizing equipment and things that give the car ion washes. Dane then turned his designs into Ivan Reitman who approved it and then the team went to work to build the Ecto-1. And after two weeks on October 19, 1983, the Ecto-1 was painted and detailed and shipped to New York to start filming. With the final shooting script of Ghostbusters done on October 7th, 1983, the first thing they filmed was Ray, Egon, and Peter running down Madison Avenue in New York City. This shot wound up being in the montage sequence later in the movie. Other early shots of the movie were of the ghost popping out of the subway stairs, Slimer in the hot dog stand, and the zombie taxi cab driver. Also, most of the Tavern on the Green scene was filmed early on. Tavern on the Green is a restaurant in New York City, and this is where Louis Tully runs to the restaurant's windows, screaming to be let in, as people inside just stare at him as the terror dog approaches Louis. Aykroyd and Murray, due to being famous on Saturday Night Live, they were easily noticed while they were filming Ghostbusters. People on the streets just from seeing Murray would go crazy, Cab drivers would just stop in the middle of the street and run up to Bill just from being huge fans. Even more so, women would be going crazy running after Bill. Bill seemed to know everybody in New York, every doorman and every person who worked in restaurants. Harold Ramis said that one time someone yelled, Hey, Bill Murray! And Bill replied back jokingly, You son of a bitch! 
as he started wrestling the man on the street down to the ground. The man Murray wrestled to the ground, just some passerby, was laughing the entire time. As they filmed in New York, the people treated them like royalty. Restaurants would open two hours earlier or stay open two hours late just to accommodate them if they wanted to eat. Principal photography then started on October 28, 1983. As the New York filming took place, the city police were very helpful to close roads for filming. This didn't go over well with the residents of New York as it did cause major traffic jams. When it came to filming one scene in particular, they stopped 90% of traffic in Manhattan. Things got heated by some people in traffic. One limo driver who wouldn't obey police moving him on got pulled out of the window by the police and was told to walk instead. Some places in New York you need permits to film, which the film crew did not get, but wound up filming anyways in places like Chinatown, Rockefeller Center, 42nd Street, Saks Fifth Avenue, and the United Nations. As the montage shots were done in one day, they filmed all over New York City. The film crew would chase the Ecto-1 around, getting shots of it going down the road and turning corners. There were two trucks together that moved six crewmen, one cameraman, and a sound man, along with all of their equipment. They filmed in Central Park West with all the crowds throughout the entire night. Then they would film shots of the crowd on the street reacting to the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. They also filmed in New York City Hall, but got into a little trouble when they started filming at Radio City Hall. There was a man telling Reitman that there was no way he had a permit to film, as it was private property. Reitman then told the man to talk to Joe Medjuk to straighten things out. And this was all just a ploy to keep the man busy as Reitman kept filming. As they filmed, things continuously evolved as newer material kept coming up due to the actors ad-libbing. Just a few of Bill Murray's ad-libs in the movie included the lines, We came, we saw, we kicked its ass, Back off, man, I'm a scientist, and Yes, it's true, this man has no dick. Also accompanying the quote with, Well, that's what I heard. Bill Murray, who always kept a pack of cigarettes in the top pocket of his Ghostbusters suit, wound up getting his pack ruined from the slime in one scene. So he walked up to the very curious crowd watching as they filmed, and he asked for cigarettes from them, and he joked that it was his time to watch them now. As Aykroyd and everybody else wanted to use the name Ghostbusters, there was one problem. The problem was that there was a cartoon named The Ghostbusters by Filmation, and Filmation was ultimately owned by Universal, who had the rights to the name. Negotiations to use the name weren't going well. So the whole time while shooting, they were using the name Ghostbusters, but also filmed using other potential names. The other name that they were seriously thinking about using was Ghost Stoppers. There was a final push to get the rights as they were four weeks into filming the movie. They were shooting a scene in West Central Park when the Ghostbusters would arrive in the Ecto-1 and the crowds on the street kept chanting Ghostbusters over and over. Joe Medjuk then ran to a phone booth nearby to call Columbia to see how things were going with getting the rights to the name. He held the phone up to the extras chanting Ghostbusters for Columbia and then he told Columbia that they better get that title. And as fate would have it, they were in luck. As the man at Columbia who helped fund Ghostbusters, Frank Price, 
He left Columbia Pictures in October to become the head of Universal. Price, who now had control of Universal, let Columbia use the name Ghostbusters in exchange for $500,000 and 1% of the film's profits. After six weeks in New York City, filming wrapped up in mid-December, and they all flew to Los Angeles, California, just before Christmas 1983. After Christmas and between New Year's, they started filming in Los Angeles. As all of the exterior shots of the firehouse were shot at hook and ladder number 8 in New York City, all the interior shots were shot at Firehouse 23, as it was the same model and design of the firehouse in New York City. Firehouse 23 in Los Angeles, where all the inside shots were done, was an actual functioning firehouse up until 1960. When they came in to start filming, the building was actually dusty as you see it in the movie. Crew members did go in and throw a bit more spider webs here and there, though. There was also a basement and an upstairs in Firehouse 23 that was actually used for the shots in the movie. So the actual upstairs of the firehouse is what you see in the movie, and also the basement where they have the containment unit. It was all shot in Firehouse 23 in L.A. Filming in Los Angeles started off pretty slow. Bill Murray was given a two-way radio to be called on when filming was ready. He'd hate being called to set when they didn't have scenes set up and ready. So Murray and Aykroyd would hang out at a sushi restaurant around the corner until they were called in. Stage 12 at Burbank Studios was used for Dana and Lewis's apartments, the apartment hallway, the Sedgwick Hotel elevator, and also the hotel hallways. And one of the world's largest sound stages, Stage 16 at Burbank Studios, was the Temple of Gozer set that took $1 million to construct. The set was built so high that it was almost touching the ceiling of the soundstage. The crystal staircase on the set was made out of three-quarter inch plexiglass. Three-fourths of the set was surrounded by a cyclorama of the Manhattan skyline. A cyclorama is basically a panoramic photo in a cylinder form. After 15 weeks of being in New York City and Los Angeles, filming wrapped in February of 1984. This gave the special effects team less than four months to create 250 visual effects for the movie. Editing was being done by Reitman as he was shooting the film to save as much time as he could. There wasn't much time for multiple takes and some scenes slowed down the movie, much like the Fort Detmering scene that got cut almost completely. On February 3rd, 1984, with most of the movie still not having special effects in it, it was seen by a test audience of 200 people. After this test audience laughed, applauded, and screamed at times, they knew they had a hit as it still worked even without the effects. Three weeks after filming ended, editor Sheldon Kahn sent Reitman the first cut of the full movie, showing Reitman how it should be paced. Sound designer Richard Beggs came in to create all the sounds in the movie. Beggs was an Academy Award winner with his work in the movie Apocalypse Now. He had a sound studio in San Francisco where he'd work on it all. He had a 24-track recorder synced up to a videotape. Back then, he would sync up sounds just by eye and hitting the tape, instead of now how you could use waveforms in modern equipment. He chose not to use any stock sounds, but rather record sounds on his own and alter them to get the noise he needed, which this is how he usually worked. 
80% of the sound effects in Ghostbusters was recorded in Begg's studio. So Beggs made a library of sounds, making different variations of how a proton pack stream would sound, and so on. This gave Reitman a bunch of different sounds to choose from. When it came to the siren for the Ecto-1, Biggs had a recording of a leopard crying that he got from a friend from his private collection. He slowed down the audio, then had it play backwards, and on top of that he filtered it to where it was almost impossible to reverse engineer the sound. The sound of Stay Puft Marshmallow Man's footsteps was made by Beggs licking his thumb and then rubbing it over a stretched piece of leather. He then slowed down the recording to get the final sound he wanted. When it came to a soundtrack, composer Elmer Bernstein scored the film with the 72-person Hollywood Symphony Orchestra. Bernstein was hired before filming and a lot of other casting had even started. He had been in Reitman's mind, as he had scored other films of his such as Animal House and Meatballs. To get the light but somewhat creepy sounds in the music, he used an Ond Martino, which is like the electronic instrument the theremin, but with a keyboard attached to it. He also used three Yamaha DX7 synthesizers. Reitman also wanted popular music to be put into the movie. They used the song I Want a New Drug, by Huey Lewis in the News as a placeholder during the montage scene. They used the tempo and the timing of the song to cut the montage sequence too. Huey Lewis was asked to compose the theme for Ghostbusters, but Lewis was busy working on music for the movie Back to the Future at the time. Between 50 to 60 songs from different artists were made for Ghostbusters, but none of them worked. They even considered Lindsay Buckingham from the group Fleetwood Mac to make a song. But then music supervisor Gary Lamell came to Ray Parker Jr. to record a demo for Ghostbusters. Parker was told to keep two things in mind. The song had to include a saxophone line and also the word Ghostbusters in the lyrics. Parker came up with the music pretty quickly but he had trouble with the lyrics, as it was hard to incorporate the word Ghostbusters without sounding cheesy. Then while watching TV, he saw a commercial for a pesticide spray It told viewers to call the number on the screen to get rid of pests. He then realized that he could say the line, Who you gonna call? and then have a crowd say, Ghostbusters. Reitman loved the song, but the record executives didn't like it. With a music video directed by Reitman, featuring all of the Ghostbusters in it, and it being in the movie, it became a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. March 1984, Aykroyd and Murray made a video standing next to the Ecto-1 talking about the movie Ghostbusters at the Show West convention. Promotion for the movie was officially ramping up, and altogether Columbia spent $10 million on marketing the movie. Months before it released in the theaters, a short 10-second teaser trailer was out that only showed the No Ghost logo, along with an announcer and text reading, Coming to save the world this summer. With a PG rating and a runtime of an hour and 45 minutes, Ghostbusters released into 1,339 theaters in North America on June 8, 1984. It made $13.6 million during its opening weekend, finishing first against the movies Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And then after its first week, it made $23.1 million. 
To keep the momentum going, Ivan Reitman had an idea. He set out to junk by late night TV advertising time to run commercials for Ghostbusters. Only during these commercials, the fake phone number used in the movie was displayed with a real 1-800 number people could actually call. When people called this number, they'd hear a message from Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. The minute-long message was about them being on call and having to do a sweep at a show called La Femme de Paris. They discuss the shock the women are going through and then mention how the caller should go see Ghostbusters. This 1-800 number got called a thousand times per hour, 24 hours a day, for six whole weeks. Ghostbusters remained the number one movie in the country for seven weeks straight. It left theaters in January of 1985 after being in theaters for 30 weeks. At that time, Ghostbusters made $229 million at the box office. It was re-released in theaters in August 1985, which made it earn another $9.4 million. The majority of reviews for Ghostbusters were positive. Film critic Roger Ebert gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars. In 1985, it was nominated at the Academy Awards for Best Original Song and Best Visual Effects. Later that year, it was nominated for three Golden Globe Awards for Best Motion Picture, Best Actor in Comedy for Bill Murray, and Best Original Song. Ghostbusters was then released for home viewing on VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc in October of 1985. Its first DVD release was in 1999. And fun fact, it was also the first full-length movie to be released on a USB flash drive in 2008. Since then, it's been re-released into theaters on special occasions, and every five years of its anniversary, going from 2009, 2014, and to 2019, it's seen special anniversary Blu-ray editions. At this point, Ghostbusters is a legendary movie and is known as one of the greatest comedy movies of all time. The movie has spawned numerous sequels, cartoons, comic books, merchandise, and a community that is alive and well to this day. In 2015, the United States Library of Congress chose Ghostbusters to be preserved in the National Film Registry, as they found it to be culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And personally, to me, I grew up watching Ghostbusters. It's been in my blood since the very beginning I could even remember. And it's always going to be looked at as one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's that. And that is your history of Ghostbusters 1984. Alright everybody, that concludes this episode, but we are not finished with Ghostbusters October. Even though today is Halloween, 
We are still going to be going on with Ghostbusters in the next episode as we are going to go scene by scene into the movie and talk about things that happened, uh, how those cards in the library blew out of the little drawers, how Dana Barrett's eggs cooked on her counter, and a whole lot more. We're going to go scene by scene and talk about some of the things that they did to make the movie uh, happen. We'll also go through the deleted scenes and things that didn't make it to the final cut. And at some point in the very near future, we're going to talk about Ghostbusters 2, which is a close, close favorite of mine as well. I think it's actually better than Ghostbusters 1984. But hey, that's just me. I know that's it's a very unpopular opinion, but we will be talking about Ghostbusters 2 in the future, and I'm very, very excited about that. Some people I'd like to thank... Giuliano for graphic design, Kimmy Pops for voiceover work. I also like to give a shout out to the book Ghostbusters The Inside Story where I found a ton of information about the movie on. Also the website Spook Central has a ton of information about the Ghostbuster films and everything Ghostbusters. Check out that website, it's great. Also there is a Ghostbusters wiki that has a lot of great stuff that if you want to further go into the rabbit hole of Ghostbusters, check all that stuff out. It's really good stuff. And last but not least, I would like to thank you for listening. And questions, comments, concerns, you want me to talk about something on the show, go through the history of it, send me a request at industrialindustriesworldradio at gmail.com. Or you could contact me on Instagram at IIWRpodcast or on Facebook too, or the YouTube thing, you know, just search Industrial Industries World Radio. I'll pop up and just leave a comment, however you want to communicate with me. So next episode is the unofficial part two of Ghostbusters going over everything and I hope to see you soon until then have a very happy Halloween and a great rest of your week good night have a great morning good afternoon and I will see you next week guys for another fun-filled episode this was episode 46 of Industrial Industries World Radio I am your host DJ Glowing Ice have a great week ladies and gentlemen and peace out next time on Industrial Industries World Radio.